Recorded live from the mats of radical MMA in New York City, the Martial Culture Podcast. Your source for in-depth combat sports and martial arts insights with, with Coach, Coach Renee Dreyfus and, and Matt Peters. Peters. Ring the bell and let's get, get it on. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Martial Culture Podcast. Uh, we took a week off, but it was for good reasons, and we're back and better than ever. Uh, we are. Renee, how are you? I'm wonderful. Good, good. As usual, best uh, day ever. <laughs> best day ever. Every day is the best <laughs> Every day, day is ever. the best day. Every day you wake up is yeah. a good day. Uh, we have uh, an honor today. We don't usually get guests in the studio, but we, we have one today. So uh, why don't you set the stage for our guest? I have to say that um, I'm really inspired with, by this person, not only for his academic and, and contributions to society, but also for his achievements on the mat. I was very lucky to have met him. As a student, uh, he was my student, and uh, um, because he wanted to expand his martial knowledge, his name is Thomas Apt, and he is a uh, expert on violence and violence prevention. But I'll, I'll leave the titles to him. We encountered uh, each other in our both more uh, martial, martial journeys, and since he's moved up to Boston, as as he has a, um, uh, a research position up there. Um, uh, but uh, he still trains very, very regularly in in jiu-jitsu and and other other martial arts, takedowns, wrestling, everything. And uh, but he's coming out with a great n- new book. Uh, but I'll let you please introduce yourself, Tom and uh, Thomas, and uh, um, let's uh, hear about you. Tell us about your background and you know what 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 uh, the book and everything. <laughs> Tell us your life story. <laughs> sure. Terrible question. So, so first, um, what, 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 you, let's get the titles and your background uh, in, in order. That's a good place to start. Sure. So uh, I have this new book coming out. It's called Bleeding Out, The Devastating Consequences of Urban Violence and a Bold New Plan for Peace in the Streets. Uh, that comes out actually um, uh, very shortly, and uh, and I've been working on this uh, book for the better part of three years. Uh, while I've been at um, the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, where I'm a senior research fellow, and uh, previous to that, um, I was head of uh, public safety for New York State, working directly for Governor Cuomo. Before that, I was working for. President Obama. I was a political appointee in the uh, Justice Department. And, uh, you know, going all the way back, I got my start in criminal justice as a prosecutor at the Manhattan DA's office right here. I actually didn't know that. Yeah, right here in New York City. That is a resume. I'm unqualified to talk to you. (laughs) (laughs) My goodness. (laughs) Anybody is qualified to talk to you. What got you interested in in criminal justice and violence prevention and the study of, of, of violence in general? You know, I don't. I don't exactly know uh, what specifically triggered it, but I can say this. Uh, and Renee, I know that you remember this uh, very well. And if you don't mind, since we're off the mats, I'm calling you Renee, not Professor. Of course, no, no. And I is that actually? I prefer people on the mats don't call me Professor as well because I, I don't really like to go on titles. Most people in my academy call me Renee or Coach. Um, I do like it to be respectful and formal, but I, you know, uh, this is kind of an uh, off subject, but I hate how Western martial artists um, sit on their titles rather than on their day to day, day to day accomplishments, not past accomplishments. But you're only as as legitimate as the training you put in that day, and and that goes for every day. And you know, uh, sensei, sabunim, professor, sifu, soke. Let's leave that alone, and let's understand that we're all martial students on our own martial journeys. Maybe I'm a little bit ahead of, of you in this journey because I've been doing it a little bit longer. Maybe not. I don't know. Um, but we're all students together. And, and you know, I, I really don't like to sit on formality of titles because I, especially in America, I think it's really abused. The best martial arts instructors I ever met uh, were, were very humble human beings, but also, you know, spoke with their actions and didn't expect respect, they earned it. And that's kind of where, where I'd, I'd like to, to be as well. So, you know, always refer to me by my, my first name. <laughs> With that being said, please call me Commander Peters. Yes. You can call me Master Splinter, actually. <laughs> uh, the rap guy. <laughs> go, I'm sorry to interrupt, yeah, but yeah. Uh, no, so, uh, uh, well, where were we? I, you I, said you were going we, to, when we met, you said something about us meeting and you had an anecdote to oh, share. Well, so, you know, Renee, as as you well know, um, oh, actually, no, I think I was going to talk about uh, one of the reasons that I was drawn to this subject, oh, yes. yeah. 
which is, uh, as you very well remember, um, you know, we're about the same age. When we were growing up, it was in the late 80s, early 90s, and that was the absolute peak of the sort of uh, uh, crime and particularly violence here in the United States. Just by way of background, uh, in the 60s, um, rates of violent crime and property crime uh, sort of slowly started to tick up. And with very few interruptions, they basically escalated until um, 1991. And by 1991, we had a homicide rate of 10 per 100,000, which was uh, extremely high. By way of comparison, now we have a homicide rate that's between four and five out of – so we're half as violent as we were. And so in 1991 or right around there, depending on what city you lived in, that was the peak. And then uh, we started creeping down um, in many cities across the United States, not all of them. So growing up – you know, this was an issue that could reach out and touch everyone, and it still can to a certain extent. But the the level of fear, the level of attention, the number of personal stories that people had um, was was broader. And in fact, in my work now, one of the central challenges is raising awareness among people who are no longer directly impacted because this is, you know, urban violence is still a huge issue for, you know, a certain segment of the population. Exactly. Um, but so, but when we were coming up, it was, it was everywhere. And, and you know, it's funny, but my most violent experiences actually happened before the so-called peak. Um, uh, I remember when New York was, this was when it was younger in the seventies, when New York went basically bankrupt and all the, social fabric seemed to be falling. And uh, I remember being on a train with my grandmother and these, you know, people came into the train and were very, very aggressive. And my grandmother goes, look away. And I still think to this day she had something in her handbag that she was ready to pull out. Like It was like this experience. It was like, oh, just another day in New York. And uh, nothing happened. They they quickly fled. But, you know, this, they, they, how are they fleeing from a 105-pound, 80-year-old woman? Well, hmm, I wonder. My grandmother hmm. never explained it. But I think I have an idea. And I was – and then the other time was um, – Violence touched me very seriously was when someone tried to kill me um, and set me on fire. Uh, uh, Jesus. A, a mentally disturbed person poured lighter fluid on me and tried to murder me. So uh, I was about 11 years old, 12 years old when that happened. And uh, grabbed onto my jacket, poured lighter fluid on me. And, and, and we, we, we also, in the Reagan administration, they had let all – they had stopped the funding for um, med- uh, institutions that deal with the emotionally disturbed. So we had this massive influx of street crime, but also of people who are emotionally disturbed. And it was a, a violent person who was also emotionally disturbed. And unfortunately, uh, you know, thank God I was okay. I, I, tra- you know, I was not as aware as should be. I was a long, young kid. Um, but um, but uh, it was a, a moment of, of extreme terror, you know. And, uh, and uh, yeah, that was, that was, that was uh, some time. And then I remember going to college and navigating about 40 or 50 drug <laughs> drug drug dealers and users on my way to NYU and and the street crime was just fantastic just super high and you know um i i i had to go to school armed you know not with a not with a firearm but i had you know um uh defensive weapons that you know that i would think i have to play i was basically a middle class kid but you know um i felt in, in uh, on my personal level i felt uh, unsafe. So yes, I, I definitely that was in the eighty eight to ninety ninety one where you know it was just not walking around the subway was not safe. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and so you know this has been an issue that I've always uh, been interested in and been connected to um, as as my career in criminal justice has has progressed. Uh, and so. Um, you know, when I when I got to Harvard and I had a sort of chance to catch my breath because I'd been sort of as they call you know these types of political jobs they call it sprinting the marathon because you kind of work crazy hours for very long periods of time and you really don't have a lot of time to sort of pause and reflect and so once I went to Harvard I did have that time and that's when I decided to uh, put this book together. Um, in terms of my martial arts journey, um, you know, I, I started boxing when I was 18. 
um, and uh, then and sort of uh, did that on and off in into my early 20s, and then I did something called uh, V-Arnis Jitsu, yes, which we've discussed, yeah. uh, which was sort of an American form of uh, street self-defense. And uh, I did that for a f- few years, and then basically um, just sort of uh, used boxing um, as, a, as a workout. Uh, and so, you know, when we met a few years ago, I think I was 42 when I started doing jiu-jitsu, I'm 47 now. Um, you know, martial arts had been sort of part of my life, but I had been kind of flirting with it, and yeah. I hadn't I hadn't really done it seriously in a while. And I I I don't remember exactly what you said to me when I walked in because I just happened to walk in off the street, but it was a world class sales pitch. I can't. It was it was exactly what I needed to hear to get me to do this uh, form of martial arts. I think one of the things that you said that was sort of incredibly appealing, which I think you probably have told other people, is one of the sort of really interesting things about jiu-jitsu is that it's a relatively open system where it's const- people are constantly innovating, yeah. throwing ideas, and people are constantly testing. It's, it's very- empirically based, not hierarchical or tradition-based. Yes. And, and that, or to some extent, every every martial art will have this interplay between tradition and innovation, and some oppose it more than others. There's always a reactionary element. Even in jiu-jitsu, you, you see the reactionary element. Oh, we don't like this new fangle guard. But the, the innovation element of jiu-jitsu is so much stronger than, than most other martial arts. And to me, I find that appealing. appealing. Um, and I think the same is true with MMA. It's it's the proof is in the pudding. We don't care where it came from. We don't care what its lineage is. We don't care as long as it works. We'll we'll take it and try to fit into a piece of puzzle, you right. know. And and that that's that's to me the most appealing part of the mixed martial art and, and jiu-jitsu journey. Well, I think I think an interesting example potentially, and you know, you're you're obviously the expert, but is uh, leg locks. Yeah. You know, leg walk locks in uh, jiu-jitsu or Brazilian jiu-jitsu were kind of traditionally disfavored, but you they know, but they broke through. Right. But, you know, it's funny you should say that because I never experienced that. I was a leg locker because I trained in Japan. So I actually came up from a leg lock uh, game. You know, In Japan, I learned leg lock, Japanese leg lock game. Um, and then my first experience with the jiu-jitsu person uh, was Sal Hibero, and uh, he came to train in Japan. And um, I, I tried to put him in a leg lock, and he's like, oh, very good. So he was no, like, you know, looking down on me for that. And and the same thing my, when I joined uh, the Machado organization, the Machados were always very, very supportive of leg locks and leg attacks. And I, as I've been told, Hickson is too. So I, I don't – I never experienced – and when I went down to Brazil to live, they called me – the first nickname I had was Zapatero, which means a shoemaker because they're like, oh, you're doing leg locks. But then, then they decided that they would prefer to call me Hot Town, which whatever. It is what it is. <laughs> but, um, but you know, I never actually experienced that people looking down at leg locks. They always told me that. But every single person I ever worked with was open-minded. And if they caught them with the leg lock, they're like, no, oh, you caught me with the leg lock. I, <laughs> I trained with this one guy. And his, his nickname is actually very inappropriate, so I won't say it here. But he was um, he was Brazilian. This was in Terrazopolis. He was a uh, black belt under, I think, uh, Bita. But I'm not sure because we were cross-training in different places. And yes, Brazilians do cross-train in different places. <laughs> but um, he was – his nickname was inappropriate because it's, it's very insensitive. But um, but he, he was nicknamed of a very historically horrible person because he would just take people's legs and, and just – Take him, take him to town, and everybody respected his game. And he was the leg locker in Terrazopolis, and um, and nobody had anything but respect for him. So everybody says that leg locks were always looked down on. I don't know about that. Now I do think that there's an issue with people getting hurt from leg locks. Sure, you know, and and so there's. Remember, I remember my old instructor told me that when he was competing, leg lo- all leg locks were in, but then they wound up like eighty percent of the competitors got hurt. So they put in this – this was like way back in the 60s or something. You know what? I don't know when. But they, they put in all these restrictions for leg locks to keep it safe. And, and you know, I do understand that because I've actually seen a lot of injuries. Um, the other thing is – and I actually agree with this. If you look at the statistical uh, – anal- if you statistically anal- analyze MMA finishes and, and leg locks have always been about 2% of MMA finishes because you do expose yourself 
two punches when you sit back for leg locks. So a very easy way to get out of a leg lock is to punch them in the face. So, you know, for the original Gracies, the idea concept was to make something that was legitimate for MMA and self-defense. So the leg lock is not always your best option. Body control Learning how to pass the guard, get on mount, take the back, and learning these body control is is thought to be was thought to be a um, little bit less risky, and also develops some fundamental skills. That being said, um, yes, I've heard that people have looked down on leg locks a lot, so I won't disagree with you. But you're right; now leg locks are this this huge thing, and um, and and they definitely have always been part of the, part of the game. Uh, and and I love how some people are mixing in different elements of different styles, whether you're drawing from the Sambo leg lock tradition or the um, going back to the old judo leg lock tradition, which is there. And you can see that's why Danaher uses the that Japanese terminology because he really researched those Japanese, you know, fundamental positions way, way back in the katas, you know, from from the 18, you know, 90s. And then he took it in, in a different direction. So you're right, though, but the open-mindedness is is is, is wonderful. And, and it's... it's uh, it's great, but I'm glad that uh, I said something to convince you to train. I actually have no idea what I said. <laughs> I'm usually consider myself a very bad salesperson. <laughs> you said 50% so, off your first month. <laughs> <laughs> black belt. Five, five, give me 50 bucks for your black belt. Yeah. I think it was something yeah. along those lines, and yeah. it's actually something uh, – I'm, I'm a blue belt now, uh, and I train in, uh, in Somerville at 617 Fight Sports with my professor, Professor Carlos Neto. And one of the things I—he's an amazing practitioner. Yeah, uh, one of the things I love about um, Professor Neto is he—he um, he, like anyone has a distinctive style, but he encourages us all to try different things, adopt different techniques. He brings in lots of different people, and so he sort of approaches the school in a very open-minded way. Mm. And so that's uh, that's something uh, I like uh, as well. You know, we always talk about martial arts as being martial arts, but we don't see it as an art in in the sense that, look, if you were Picasso's teacher, you wouldn't say, Picasso, stop painting like that. Paint like I ta- like I do. You know, the idea is not to make clones of yourself. That is narcissistic, and unfortunately, some Japanese martial art traditions fall into that because of their, their tradition is not that, but because a lot of Japanese martial arts traditions were actually influenced by the militarism of the the 1930s, and the martial arts were designed to create as as an extension of, or, or, or of the like what, what we call the ROTC program, mm. you know, where pre boot camp, where we want to make automatons that can fit into this military box, so you know, innovation creativity, your own personal sense of self, that is not what we want. We want you to be a box. And that's this box can go anywhere and we want you to be a soldier and do this. So a lot of the, um, if you look at Okinawan Karate, it's very much like open-minded. I, I happen to have a very good friend who's 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 an Okinawan karate practitioner in in, in Okinawa, and um, his, his his family's Okinawa, and they're they're like, oh, go box, go do Muay Thai, go experiment this. They're very open-minded. But you look at Japanese karate, and it's very different, and that is due to the militarism and the extension of that militarist culture that they never really shook off. And it's like, let's be automatons. Now, if you're teaching someone to be an automaton, you'll never develop Roy Jones Jr. You'll never develop Mayweather. You'll never develop, you know, um, uh, uh, Buchecha or, you know, some some artist. There has to be an element of creativity in what you do and your own personal expression, like Bruce Lee said. It's a personal expression of movement. Um, that being said, of course, there's right and wrong and there's fundamentals. But if you're negating or destroying someone's personal creativity – you you're they're never going to be good right. and and that is true for every martial art ever so your your system um which you know i get to every you know when i come back to new york i get to dabble in um and you're always very welcoming and the, the you know the school is very welcoming which i love i love coming back uh you know you have a lot of very um you know specific techniques that you want done a certain way yes and these very things. much so <laughs> so so how do you balance that and, right and when that's a great question when so, do you start telling your students like okay start to innovate yeah. does this work for you does it not basically a blue belt so okay. so my my that this is a great question i, I hope we talk more about your book in a second <laughs> but uh but um but uh that's a that's a phenomenal question and it's this question is like constantly like i, I have a student um 
uh, Drew. And Drew is, is still white belt, but he's approaching blue and he's very good. But I noticed that he has this uh, propensity towards a certain move, uh, which is X-Guard. And um, I'm not an X-Guard guy. I mean, I do X-Guard. But I constantly have him drill a little bit more X-Guard into whatever fundamental we're doing. So I'll say – and then I have another student who's a triangle guy. So everybody should have their own little thing. That being said, at white basic white belt, you have to learn the fundamentals. And again, it goes back to art. When you go to art school, you have to learn certain specific things of how to approach thinking about positions, thinking about leverage, thinking about this. Same thing in striking. If you can't throw a clean jab – you have no business, you know, trying to, you know, be Lomachenko. You know, if you can't do a good hip escape in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you should not be doing Barambolo, you know, which is a higher level move. There's a, a level of fundamental and each system of control, whether it's mount, whether it's the triangles, every position is a little mini system. And you have to get the base eh, eight to ten moves of that system. Eh, maybe not. It depends. Some some a little more, a little less. But basic, basic game of that system, then – Go to town. And and Hickson's, Hickson Gracie's idea of like what makes a blue belt, wherever the fight goes, you have a certain fundamental understanding of what to do there. Whether it's, okay, you're in guard, you're mounted, you're in side control bottom, side control top, you're in you know, north-south, you have this, you're in the triangle. Any, wherever you are, you have a certain offensive and defensive understanding of the leverages and the systems of that position. And there's not an infinite number of positions, you know, um, and and so that's really uh, really what, what uh, I have. And also my system is based on certain principles that I feel are really important for MMA and self-defense. And I, I'm, those functional principles, like today we're doing arm bars, and we don't want someone to do an arm bar and wind up on the bottom and get punched in the face. As you commit to that arm bar, you have to maintain the top control and roll out, roll through the arm bar if somebody defends and wind up into, into a position where you're not exposing yourself to damage. And you can see this MA a lot, especially with the girls. A lot of times they'll do an arm bar on the bottom and then they'll get pancaked, you know, like sort of like paninied into, into, you know, like this. And then the person on top will just start throwing elbows to the head. And one fight I saw that was particularly brutal was Carla Condit and George St. Pierre. And Carlos Conant tried like four arm bars from the bottom of Jordan St. Pierre and his head was just – he had um, 15 minutes of – or no, it was a five-minute – it was a title fight, five-minute five, five, uh, five, uh, five round, 25 minutes of um, uh, rhinoplasty <laughs> done to him. His face was just like you know rearranged and, and it, it basically broke his career. Imagine if that was a street fight. He would be dead. You know, there's certain things that you, you know, that, that would just happen that you can't do an MMA or, or just, you know, that he wouldn't have, the round wouldn't have ended. He would be dead. So, uh, those, those fundamental understandings of principles and, and, and systems take precedence over creativity in the beginning. Grounding, ground yourself in a good foundation. Then when you're ready, okay, go to town. And also, I tell my students at a certain level, don't listen to anything I say. <laughs> you know, you find the answer. Now, maybe the answer is the same as mine. You know, experiment. Maybe you come to the same answer that I do. Great. If you don't, you teach me. But that's also, again, at the blue, purple, brown. That's where, that's where you go off and you be your own scientist. And then you don't really listen to me anymore other than maintaining these larger concepts and principles. You always have to use leverage, position, angles, wedges, efficiency, good breathing, timing, things like that. When you have that down, Let's see what you can come up with. You know that that's kind of it's it's a, it's a hard road, and I, I think as an educator, you can say the same thing outside of martial arts. It's you you know this so this happened to me when I did my grad work. There were certain professors who were so large in their in their conception that their students became like you know clones of them, and they're not really thinking or doing any innovative research. You're like, wow, this is just you know so and so's you know professor. He's just you know just the same old same old. You're not really expanding the debate. And I think that's true with every teacher. If you're a teacher who's a narcissist, um, you want to create automatons. If you're a teacher who really is in, in, involved in, in developing your students, you want them to disagree with you. You want them to think. You want them to engage you. You don't want to be always told you're right all the time. That, I, that's, yeah, that's what I... That you're you're right, Werner. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I agree. I had a... Uh, I had an interesting experience uh, this past semester with my students. I was teaching a class on urban violence, and I assigned the 
uh, the sort of um, rough draft of, of my book. They had a sort of preview mm. of the book, and so they, they all read through it. And so it was very interesting to see all the students sort of responding. And one of the things, uh, when, when the responses were not uh, that interesting is when they basically just repeated my own ideas back to me. Yeah. And I tried, you know, at the beginning of the class and throughout to say, you know, this, this, I'm assigning this, but I'm assigning lots of other readings as well. You don't have to agree with me. This isn't a way, you know, you're not going to get a better grade by, you know, signing on to the ideas in, mm-hmm. in the book or th- those things. But, but I did see some people sort of just regurgitating yeah. back what I had said. And that is something that in future classes, uh, I will. I'll try even harder to. Yeah, it to just shows avoid. me what a wonderful uh, instructor you are because uh, I, I took this uh, when I was at Columbia doing my master's. I, was, I took this, you know, from this class. I won't say his name from Star Expert in Japanology. Blah 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 blah. And I actually took uh, did did something an exam. And I I he's like I could tell that he just wanted to be agreed with. And I actually scored the highest out of the entire class because I just repeated exactly what he did in a just you know nuanced way. And I, I and he's like, and he announced that this is what's such a great paper and this and that. And I'm like, oh, you such this is garbage. And that actually turned me off to academics. And I'm like, okay, so this super famous professor just wants me to you know massage his ego, mm-hmm. not really think. And uh, and and you know I've always been impressed with you. You know, but I can tell you, you're not that kind of person. You're questing intellect, and you want your students to quest as well. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, I you know, I don't think I'm a you know uh, a particularly powerful in- intellect. I mean, I've spent most of my career in mm-hmm. you know public service and government, mm-hmm. and you know have really just spent the last few years. So I don't think of myself as you know a big big brain or anything like that. Yeah, uh, okay. But, That's humility right there. He's pretty awesome. But I think, <laughs> but I think that one of the things. Um, that I am is I really am genuinely and conscientiously um, concerned with a particular problem. And I'm open to any information about that problem that will help solve that problem. And coming back to violence, you said that there was this large uptick. uh, And I know that there's also been a downtick in violence, and we're not always so clear on what those circumstances are. Can you explain... Going back to, I'm, I'm sure the book deals with it. That what the, you you think led to the upticks in, in urban violence, and what led the the, the decrease in ur- urban violence? I, I've heard many theories that say, well, it actually could have burned itself out through violence or this or that or whatever. But I'm really here to here here to hear what you have to say about that subject. Sure. So it's a it's a it's a challenging way to open up on the subject because it begins with kind of a, a disappointment, which is this is probably you know the most important subject in American criminology. You know, why did crime uh, shoot up and then why did it uh, drop uh, just as precipitously? And the answer is we don't know. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know you heard the, 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 there was the, the thing that said, well, actually, when abortion became more common, it was this. It was like some kind of weird right. – so, uh, statistically speaking, it might have had some right, small – Right. The Freakonomics debate yeah, with yeah. Uh, with abortion. Uh, Stephen Levitt with a co-author has actually just doubled down on that um, with a new paper. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of people raised um, concerns about that theory mm-hmm. and I think that um, those concerns were pretty well-founded. And so it was pretty shocking just this year to have Stephen Levitt come right back and with push. another study. I don't, and and so there are leading. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to sort of suggest that you know nobody in criminology has any ideas about this, but there are sort of leading theories. Um, the, the theory about the abortions is that just saying that there's less people to do violent crimes in certain. I think the. I think the. I think the theory was. Um, when, uh, that if it is that um, mothers who were unable to uh, effectively raise their children because they lacked the resources and all mm-hmm. of these things, if they if abortion was legal, some some of those mothers would choose not to have those. Yeah, and they would grow uh, up instead of growing up in horrible circumstances, mm-hmm. and then finding going into a life of crime, they don't exist. So then there's less. Crime. That is a dangerous theory. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a, yeah, yeah. Controversial, controversial for sure. It was very controversial, and it was um, questionable on the evidence yeah. as well. So the other theory that resonated with me in my historical studies, you can see some of this actually played out historically. Is that 
I, I this is one theory, and I, I, I'm I'm not a student of urban criminology. I just I I brushed on this theory in from a more historical context. Is like when incredibly violent peoples. Uh, interact, and you can see this in Japan. When the the peak of of violence happened in Japan, what happens is all the violent people killed each other. So there's less violent people around, and you can see these peaks and valleys of of violence in Japan because, and it co- coincides with the death rate of the violent age of eighteen to twenty seven. And so there's these valley of violence because there's this massive kill off. And I and I remember the 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 I mean if the 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 violence that happened in the 90s it got to a peak and then it started peaking off and I was like hmm this someone had mentioned that well actually the the the, the violent people kind of killed each other off I was like oh that's an interesting concept I don't know how true it is but <laughs> are we I, due but, yeah, for another yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. but I, I, from a historical path perspective is it still yeah, going it down uh, <laughs> yeah no I mean I'm yeah. shaking my head I, yeah, I, I, I'm sure yeah. I'm not sure that that's the I mean yeah. let's put it this way I haven't yeah. seen a lot of evidence right, to that, right, right, right. To that yeah. uh, effect I mean but demography, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, overwhelmingly violent crime is a, phenom- a phenomenon uh, between and among uh, young men, uh, both as perpetrators, overwhelmingly as perpetrators, but also the vast majority as victims. So something like 90 to 90 plus percent of uh, perpetrators of violent crime are men of any age, but something like 60 to 70 percent of the victims of violent crime, particularly uh, lethal violence, yeah. are men Does as well. Does that include like sexual violence or just talking like – No, I'm talking, yeah, I'm talking yeah. more about uh, deadly violence. violence murder. Yeah, right, exactly. Right. Right. And, and that's something I should be clear about. Uh, there are multiple forms of violence and I'm a specialist in a particular type of violence, which is urban violence, which is sort of roughly the sort of intersection between – Gang violence, gun violence, youth violence, street violence. It's not family violence. Right. It's not um, state-sponsored. Te- you know, it's terrorism. not terrorism or right. or you know, uh, study of, of war or yeah, things right, like right, that. Right. right. Um, and that's something that I think uh, people don't always appreciate is that um, you know human beings have uh, used violence as a tool. In many different contexts, in many different capacities, we have um, we have different um, physiological sources for violent behavior in our brain. It doesn't just come from one place, and so the idea that there is one unifying theory of all violence is not accurate. I mean, for instance, uh, just to take two very different kinds of violence, uh, there's. Um, what's known as expressive violence versus instrumental violence. Uh, expressive violence is violence where you're um, that's driven by emotion, where you're um, angered by something. It's often committed in a very impulsive way, and it and it that is a lot of the urban violence that we see. Like it's, somewhat performative, like right. a, for hierarchical structure. Right. Yeah. It's it's in reaction to a perceived uh, slight, or, slight or, yeah. or insult or or, yeah. or these types of things. Um, and you can, and so you contrast that with instrumental um, violence, which is violence that is, uh, um, you know, unemotional, uh, very rational, often planned out in advance, um, and is just done to achieve a specific goal. It could be a commercial goal, it could be economic, it could be political, and so. And what you see is that um, you know when people are contemplating different types of violence, different parts of their brains light up when they're examined. And you can just think about it. When you're when you're contemplating instrumental violence, you know, you're on the hunt. Yes. You're focused. You're vigilant. Yes. You're not angry. Right. You know, you have a you have an you have a objective in mind. Whereas when you're contemplating expressive violence, which is most of what the urban violence we see is you get angry. You feel threatened, intimidated, so you respond. Right, right, right. I, I know um, some in the martial arts circle, people who sometimes refer to the, the performative play before violence is very often what's called the monkey dance. And to offset the ex, uh, the um, uh, uh, rise in, in the, the, the violence of that moment, you have to understand that this person is performing this thing to maintain social hierarchy because of perceived slight or anger. And if you assuage that anger or say something like that, you can offset the, it going into an escalation. And I think that's an important part of understanding that if you're dealing with someone who is there because they 
they, they, they're trying to have some sort of social goal and violence is a tool for that, but emotionally based, or are they planning a home invasion and they're going to tie you up and, you know, take everything you own and maybe kill your family. That's to- totally different type of things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I also think that, you know, they're, they're, I feel like it's very commonly understood that the deeper you get into more martial arts, often the more like the less likely you are to ever sort of use them in some sort of affirmative, ag- aggressive, aggressive way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that is because as you get better at um, physically defending yourself, you don't feel those stimuli towards expressive violence. You're not feeling threatened. You're not feeling provoked. And even if you are, you consider alternative results. I, I yeah. recently was at a dinner party of all things, and uh, it got a little heated. And really? someone like really raised their voice in a very aggressive way wow. and sort of killed the dinner party. <laughs> but it, at you? Uh, at me. Uh, oh, they, I'm and, sorry to hear that. Well, it was – it, it, well, the interesting thing was is, is you know, they raised their voice and everybody got sort of um, tense and I felt it myself. But I also, because of the training, I yeah. sort of was like looking at it from a distance. Yeah, I know exactly. Like like your your, 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 your uh, apparition outside of yourself and you're just able to more um, uh, logically see the – yeah, logically see the situation – from a calm demeanor that that's happened to me too where you know people come like, and you're like okay buddy whatever you want yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so and and so i sort of looked around the table and i was sort of like you know i thought what's the way that you know we can deal with this which is the least uncomfortable for everybody here yeah and i think you know i mean it's not like you know, five years ago before I was doing jujitsu, I would have, you know, flipped the table over or anything like that. <laughs> but you definitely there's a uh a different a different a definite feel. And I have to say in you know mixed- Did you feel physically threatened? No. No. Uh, I mean I mean like if you had no training, would you would he going to no, physically aggress no, on you? No, it's right? certainly yeah. certainly not gonna, you yeah. know you know, get up and move around the table at the <laughs> restaurant or whatever. <laughs> I mean, that would have been very surprising. But, uh, but you know, but there is this interesting thing, which is that even in, you know, quote unquote, civilized situations, I think particularly between, uh, between men, they, you know, the conversation could be, you know, uh, you know, quite, um, you know, quite polite. But really, there's like two chimps who are, you know, <laughs> underneath the surface who are kind of beating Absolutely. their chests. And and let me tell you, no matter how civilized you are, there in in and I've seen this in. I used to work in the private sector, and uh, in, uh, in 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 the finance sector for a very short time. And there was an inter, interaction between people, and there was almost always some level of implied violence. Even if there was this fat old guy, you know, but he would just get in your face and be like, I want this done by tomorrow. And and the violence could be repercussions uh, 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 in terms of, you know, d- disciplinary for, for your work, but really it wasn't. What he was is getting too deep into your personal space and getting right up into you. And, and it's that, that chimp, chimpanzee, you know, beating your chest thing. And, and, you know, when I worked there, people would get really angry because I would not react the way that, you know, I had to be meek and I'm like, dude, I could kill you with my pinky, <laughs> you know, like, and, 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 and people thought it was like, you know, they, they why, why is he not reacting the way I'm like, oh, it's fine. You know, it, it's once you're really trained, this, you're right. The level of stimuli, stimuli that comes at you that, in, that, that intimidates you is, is very, very, you know, like small. I would it pay a lot really of money to see Renee mad. I've never seen him like raise his voice. No, no <laughs> I raise my voice, especially when I coach. I raise my I'm voice sure, a lot, yeah. but I'm not actually angry. I'm like, let's go, let's go. That's my yeah. job as a coach. I raise my voice a lot. I'm intense. You're the type coaching. of person when you see them mad, you yeah. know, oh, oh, oh I made when a mistake. When I'm really <laughs> angry, I'm when I'm really angry, I, I feel like uh, the other person's won because I've ceded control mm. of my emotions to someone else, and I feel like it's a loss of myself. You know, if you've allowed someone to, and anger is destructive. You know, it it it, it feels physiologically. Mm-hmm. So if you somebody get you riled up. And I would, I'm no Zen monk, you know, it happens. But what I always do is I, I see it as a failure that I've allowed someone else to control my mental state mm-hmm. and, and ruin my happiness. I'm on this life for a short period of time. Let me brush this off. 
spend time with my wife, my friends, have a good time, and uh, you know, and just just move move past it. Now, if I feel physically threatened, which this was about three years ago, I was on a train and there was an incident where it could have gone to a state where it was actually more and more almost 10 years ago now because that was before I was married but uh, it could have gone to a place where I would have to have drawn from all my training to stay alive and it didn't go there but it was very 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 close and I was not mad but I was I had to go in the zone and if I told you I wasn't afraid I, I would be a lie but I also felt that I had to control that and, and direct that energy and it was t- touch and go it was these two guys, and they were harassing a girl, and they were not good guys. They were not. And they were really harassing this girl. And I said, and then I knew one of them was armed. Absolutely, 100%. Like, they're just those kind of guys, right? And they were in this train, and I wasn't angry. I mean, I was angry at the situation, but I'm like, I have to go. And he looked at me. They looked at me and looked at me, and, and it, it, didn't, it did not escalate, thank God. But there was that moment where I was like, thank God I'm trained. Because if I'm not, I'm dead here. Otherwise, I just have to run away. You right. know? And, uh, but I can't run away when I see someone in distress. It's, it's, I can't do that. I can't well, do I, that. I saw uh, one of those um, YouTube clips from the, um, the, uh, those, the Gracies who are on the West Coast, the younger generation. Um, here on Halleck? Yeah. yeah. And they raised an interesting point. They were talking about an experience their students – street to self-defense situation. And they raised something which I thought was interesting, which is if you're practicing jujitsu regularly, a potentially likely scenario where you would use it on the street is actually not for yourself. It's, as you said, in this in defense of someone else because you're probably not going to put yourself in a situation. Yeah. You'll be aware or you'll just walk away. or Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's it's, actually true. It's more likely that you'll see something happening to someone else that you don't think you can walk away from. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm sorry. Let's get back to your book and, and – and <laughs> Sure. All right. So – so I'll, I'll. I'm sorry for dominating the conversation. No, that's all right. Day, right? Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm fascinated by this, and uh, if there's time, we should talk about the the intersection between urban violence and uh, and martial arts because I do think um, it's a great way to engage um, youth who are at risk of getting involved mm. and diverting them uh, yeah. in the in the right way. But um, the book broadly, basically. Uh, talks about urban violence as something that people tend to believe is this uh, intractable uh, problem that we can't really do anything about unless we're talking about the biggest possible solutions, unless we're talking about ending poverty, unless we're talking about banning guns or you know, uh, eliminating gangs or legalizing drugs. It's all about, you know, uh, the typical thinking is to um, to address violence, you have to work from the outside in. You know, you have to you have to end racism, you have to stop inequality, all of these different things. And 30 years of rigorous social science evidence, meaning trying things, testing them carefully and then seeing whether they work work or not, again and again and again. The book is based on over 1400 individual policy evaluations says that that's not true. That really? in fact, no, that oh. in fact, um, urban violence is highly concentrated. It doesn't concentrate among sort of large groups of people. It concentrates among a small, very small network of individuals. Um, and it doesn't concentrate in quote unquote dangerous neighborhoods. It concentrates in micro locations known as hotspots. And so you know, and and a lot of this research really reinforces what people who I've interviewed um, for the book and who I've just come across in my travels doing this work, you know, always say, which is like, you know, if you're if you live in a dangerous neighborhood, you know, there are certain streets you go down and certain streets you don't. You know that even within this quote unquote dangerous neighborhood, there's safe places and there's not safe places, and also. You know, you know that even within the most allegedly dangerous neighborhoods, most people are not involved in serious violence. They might have a hustle. They might be doing, you know, they yeah, might right, be right, right. this or that or yeah. the other thing. But in terms of people who are truly, truly dangerous in terms of the potential to, 
you know, commit lethal violence. That's a small number of people, even in these places, and everybody in the neighborhood knows who those people are. Is that I, – I, I find this terminology slightly offensive, but I know that it, it, because of its racial overtones. But there, I know there was a one point of talking about the super predator. Is that – what? that's not what you're talking about though. No, the, yeah. that the super predator uh, myth was – it is a myth because yeah. it's now been debunked – was exactly the opposite. The super predator myth said – you know, there's a whole generation of young men who are, you know, not going to um, stay in school and not going to get employed, and they're all going to become violent criminals. Yeah, yeah. Right. And that's exactly the opposite of what I'm saying, which is that even is that it's not about uh, the demographics; it's about what you do with this very small number of people and this very small number of places. And so, there's basically the types of solutions that work are things like um, a program known as focused deterrence where you identify carefully, you know, what are the key gangs, you know, in a certain area, what are the key gang members, and then you go to them and you confront them, not as just as law enforcement, but with law enforcement with the community. And you basically give them a, a message and you say, look, we are here to help you. But if you won't accept our help and you continue to commit violence, we're here to stop you. And so you present a message that's both empathy and accountability. And you make two promises. You make a promise to help and a promise to stop. And then you have to follow up, meaning that if people take the, take that choice and they say, I'm ready to stop the shooting, then you got to help them. You got to help them get that ID. You have to help them clear their warrants. You have to, you know, have to help them with job training, all of these different things. But if they persist, then you have to make good on your other promise. Right, right. And I, I think also sometimes there's lack of cultural will to extend the empathy element to criminals. You know, uh, that that I think, especially on the more conservative side of the, the equation, you know, why do we have empathy for these people? But I, I think that's a wonderful approach and very interesting and innovative. Right. Well, there's basically three principles to violence reduction in terms of the things that really work. Focus, focusing on these specific people and places. Balance, meaning can't be all carrot, can't be all stick, can't be just law enforcement, um, can't be not involving law enforcement at all. And then um, fairness, so focus, balance, and fairness. And one of the things that we've seen in you know the United States right now is that we're really going through sort of a crisis of confidence in the criminal justice system. And, you know, we're talking about this as if it's all about, you know, cops versus, um, you know, advocates and activists. But what people don't realize is when people don't believe in the system, uh, the community itself becomes more violent because if people don't believe in the police, they don't use the police. Yeah. Absolutely. And when your cousin gets beat up, you know, you don't call 911. No, you, know, you call the other cousin. Right. Yeah, yeah. And you guys, you yeah, know, yeah. quote unquote, handle yeah. your business. Right, right. And that creates these cycles of retribution, the tit for tat, and it goes on and on and on. And so, you know, legitimacy is not just about some pie in the sky idea of right and wrong and, you know, people getting along in kumbaya. It really matters in terms of, um, you know, avoiding violence. That's that's wonderful. I, I look forward to to reading the book in detail. Absolutely, yeah, fantastic. Um, but and you, you know, it's interesting that we we have this intersection of, of martial arts. And at the end of the day, I think a lot of us join martial arts for sportive reasons or exercise or thing. But to me, there always has to be an emphasis on on the martial. And you're being able to defend yourself. And also, like you said, that when you train real, for real, when you really train, and I'm not talking about McDojo, karate, or taekwondo, or whatever. No. When you really train, you, like you said, you, you reap these internal benefits that make you less violent. And what we're trying to do at Radical is actually have a reach out to some some more at-risk youth so we can we can expand our um, our, our, our growth to these people who might, you know, can kind of bring them 
to have a more positive way of looking at life. You know, they can they can dial down the violence in their lives and also get in a place mentally where they're more of a, a, a positive to the community instead of a negative. I've already, on a smaller scale, I've had a few students like that, you know, uh, but we, the owner and I are, are trying to expand it on a larger scale going in the future because I think the Marshall Path is always a path of, uh, that, that when, when done correctly and really is a path of growth and, 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 and self-actualization. You know, which means you're going to be a better version of yourself and probably a better version to the to the community. I think that's true. I also think, and I think that, um, and I think there's some good evidence of of st- programs that have been studied that you know martial arts and combat sports can be an effective way of sort of uh, working with that risk youth. Mm-hmm. But, and this is important, you know, kids who are who are really at high risk for violent victimization or perpetration they got a lot going on yeah and absolutely. the idea that one thing is going to help them is crazy yeah, yeah. and yeah. so in my experience uh the best sort of programs like these uh use combat sports and martial arts to engage and they bring someone in because they're interested mm-hmm. in these things but they also then link them to Social services. And Cognitive and behavioral and therapy, therapy, treatment, all of these things. Um, there's a great organization that I've consulted with called Luta Pela Paz. In, um, it's a Brazilian organization called Fight for Peace. And it's, uh, it's boxing-based, but it's now franchised all over the, over the world. And you know, it engages kids with the promise of teaching them boxing. But very quickly, they can't do their boxing unless they showed up for their mentoring, unless they did this, unless they did that. And so I think it's important that while I think martial arts is an extremely helpful part of putting people on the right path. It's no panacea. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Absolutely. 100%. I agree. Absolutely agree with that. You know, you're dealing with a complex multifactorial problem. To think that one thing could fix it is ludicrous. Yeah. yeah. But, but it can be helpful. Yeah. A- absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, no, this was fascinating. And uh, I guess we'll look out for uh, 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 Bleeding Out. Um, and it, it, so what day is it it's releasing? So it's going to come out on June 25th. June 25th. And I, I recommend it. And you have a reading here in New York um, uh, also at that time, don't yeah, you? Yeah, that day uh, uh, there will be a, a – um, by the time we hear this, the, the, the reading will probably be over. But it's on that same day at the Strand. Uh, bookstore. Do you have any other readings planned in in, in uh, Boston or anything? A schedule a tour? Yeah. So from New York, I go uh, go back to Boston, which is where I live now. Uh, then I head to D.C., um, then to Baltimore, um, then to Chicago, then to D.C., and uh, I also have St. Louis planned. So. We can post up on the on the website uh, on the Facebook page a, a schedule of your readings if anybody wants to. Attend, oh, right? well, that would be a that would busy be. summer for you. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah, make sure you train in all the places you visit. Yeah, well, I, I, I <laughs> <laughs> yes, professor, I will do my best. Yeah, well, thank, thank you so much. Yeah, thank yeah, you so, so much for coming. Today. It was just fascinating. I feel like just we just scratched the surface. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, time time is finite. Absolutely. Um, so maybe we'll have you back on again sometime in the future. Yeah, I hope so. Um, yeah. To yeah. delve more into violence. And then we, we got in a little bit and, of what caused it, but let's talk about next time. Well, how we fix it. Yeah. yeah. Preventing violence. Yeah. 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 All right. Fantastic. Thank well, you so much. It was wonderful right. sharing the mic with you and, and you know, and, and interacting in a different way than we usually do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no leg locks today. No leg locks. All right. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll catch you next week. All right. Bye-bye. Yeah,